Hello, I'm Aminata Fauna, and this is the Beyond Borders podcast. This episode features Bosnian-American writer Alexander or Sasha Hemon in conversation with journalist and broadcaster Adam Little. Hemon's life story is fairly well known. He became stranded in the USA on the eve of the siege of Sarajevo in 1992 and wasn't able to return home for many years. His latest book, The World and All That It Holds, begins, as so many of his works do, with the siege of Sarajevo. It is a multi-layered saga set across Europe and Asia of great journeys, extraordinary lives and loves, falling empires and the remaking of the nation-state through wars, whether international, global or civil. Please follow us from wherever you listen. Here's Sasha Hemon talking to Adam Little. You know, I declare my interest. I love this book. I like everything you write. And, uh, uh, but this took me by surprise. It's not quite like anything you've written before. To introduce the book to people who haven't, might not have read it, can you tell us who the two main characters are? The two main characters are Rafael Pinto and Osman Karishik. They're Sarajevans. Uh, Rafael is um, a, Sephard, a Sephardic Jew and uh, Osman is of Muslim background. The book starts in 1914 with the assassination of the Archduke, after which both of them end up in the Austro-Hungarian army and find themselves in the trenches of what is now Western Ukraine and was known as Galicia. And then their journey uh, leads them with some significant complications um, to Shanghai. And uh, the main story of the book ends in 1949 with the fall of Shanghai into the communist hands. And Pinto is there um, with a woman who is a kind of his adopt, not a kind of his adopted daughter. And there's an epilogue in Jerusalem in 2001. Um, the two of them fall in love in the trenches of Galicia, and much of the story is really their love story in the context that is, you know, not usual for love stories. Yeah, I want to ask you about why you made it a love story and not a friendship in a, in a second, but, but let's go back to the start. And that evocation of Sarajevo in, in 1914 is, is wonderfully achieved and realized. How did you go about doing that? Well, it took me about 13 years. I don't even know actually how long it took me to write this book. I know that I sold it on proposal to my British publisher in 2010, which means that I had some kind of idea what it is going to be about. I had an outline of three or four pages. And then, um, and then I kept writing it. And, and while I was writing this book, I was, wrote four other books and scripts and number of articles and moved to Princeton from Chicago and had children and lost a child and so on. Um, so the evolution is not, <laughs> I can't remember some of the things why I made certain decisions. It is true that in the proposal, they were friends. And I can't remember the moment of decision um, what happened that I made a decision for them to be lovers, but kind of reconstructing and in precisely my way of thinking, I think that in the initial imagining um, what I wanted them to, to do is this feel this intense nostalgia for Sarajevo, for home, and that their driving force would be, with the, be desire to get back home, but because of the historical circumstances, they would be f moving further and further away, all the way to Shanghai from home. In, in decided early, they would go east, not west. I went west, they would go east. And, uh, and the reason for that, and I may be wrong about this, 
is that nostalgia is kind of a, a, a flat pitch, right? It can get more intense, but it really is the same register. Whereas love, particularly in those circumstances, it has, you know, um, variations. In any given set of circumstances, love is, is full of ups and downs and variations and crises and sorting out things and learning about the other person and so on. And I thought that would be narratively more productive. Mm. And so they, they get progressively further and further away from the home that they long to return to. You know, it's, you're writing about yourself, aren't you? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm writing about my people, as it were, and both of them are, you know, Sarajevans, and they left the city that I love, and I have been back uh, many times after I left, but still there's this sense of, there's inherent loss and displacement, right, that um, one could think of any kind of migration, let alone uh, migration uh, or refugees, um, as dividing life and one's um, in, uh, story of one's life into the before and the after, <laughs> right? And the before is never again available, even if you go back, yeah. because this displacement is a traumatic experience, right? Yeah. And that's uh, difficult psychologically, but it offers narrative possibilities yeah. in, in that respect. So that I wanted to um, exaggerate it, as it were, so that they could not physically come back. Yeah. Right? They keep longing, talking about it, and telling stories about it, but it becomes further and further away. At some point, Pinto, this is happening between 1940 and 1949. There are no phones, let alone you know, social media. So at some point, has, he cannot really know whether the Sarajevo that he remembers exists as such. It may have been leveled. Mm -hmm. He spends World War II in Shanghai. There are no news, right? It's not a, a ma major front line. It's hard to know the news. So he cannot, he has the only version of Sarajevo that exists, as far as he's concerned, is what he remembers. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, 30 years old mm -hmm. or so. Two of the best friends that I made in Bosnia during the siege of Sarajevo there ended up in Canada. And uh, um, a middle-aged couple with three kids. And the wife adapted very well. She made a life there, but uh, her husband always struggled with being away, and she said to me once, his great sadness is the only country he wants to live in. It just doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And this, uh, is, a, this is the migrant's experience, isn't it? it? While I was, you know, I know that feeling. I was at a wedding in London in 2005, and there were my, one of my best friends, and there were 30, 40 of us. 10 of them were close friends. And they came from all over, from Sarajevo, from Canada, from Switzerland, from all kinds of places, from Australia. And so I thought, if these 50 people, or 30 people, whatever it was, lived in the same place, I will go to that place. Mm -hmm. But there's no such place, mm -hmm. right? And so um, you keep longing for the thing that cannot be retrieved while living a life in a new set of circumstances. It has to be productive, and that is full of new love. My wife is American, my kids are American, right? I cannot um, deprive them of my love because I keep being nostalgic, right? And so it is not something that I suffer from profoundly in some ways. I mean, I'm aware of it and it constitutes my personality and psychology at this point. It is like an organ that I can get rid of and I do not want to get rid of. Mm -hmm. But it is narratively productive mm -hmm. because nostalgia is a, is a system of stories, a narrative system, right? The way things used to be, right? It's edited, it's usually Edit, you know, bad things are edited, like it's kind of retroactive utopia. Mm. You remember the good things if you don't have access to it, right? Mm. I, my, uh, because I, I, I can split my mind as well and remember, oh, how parties we had, right? Mm. 
the people I knew, but also remember that between January and March I was depressed and I would stare at the ceiling for three months and listen to the kind of music that my father called scraping and so to console myself. So it was not a happy time. I know this rationally. And yet there's this descent. If there's a void after displacement, it is editorialized, right? You put the good things into that void, yeah. right? So to, to convince yourself that you were not that your life has some kind of continuity of joy and pleasure and love and so on. Mm. And the, 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 they travel a long distance uh, over land, and so there are many, many places that you evoke. Uh, Central Asia, they which yeah. republic is it they, trans they travel to? Well, this would be today's Uzbekistan, yeah. and then they um, go um, to Kashgar, which is, you know, Xi'an, right, uh, western China, which means they had to pass through Kyrgyzstan. Yeah. But at that time, there was all, you know, um, it was first a Russian Empire because they end up as prisoners of war in Tashkent in 1916 after the uh, so-called Brasilov Offensive in 1916 in Galicia, Western Ukraine. But then, you know, revolution happens and the, the, the empire dissolves and there's a chaotic situation in Uzbekistan. Bolsheviks are uh, in power, but not really, and there's a total, total, total chaos. And then they escape and travel through um, uh, China uh, and where you know various gangs operate, and the central uh, government has no influence whatsoever. It's really warlords. At no point, except maybe that's very beginning in the book, do they pass through what we would now call a nation state or any kind of you know infrastructure, so social infrastructure. Right? It is. Um, they pass through war zones and deserts and and mountains and being pursued by various people. It's really a kind of a refugee epic. Um, and there's a, the, the, it's, the book starts in, the, in Pinto's chemist's shop, his, his, yeah. his uh, pharmacy store, with a, a young Austrian army officer. Goes in. Yeah. yeah. Tell, tell us what, what happens in that. It won't give too much away if we tell you how the novel starts. <laughs> well, Pinto is a uh, Viennese student, right? Bosnia was occupied by the Austrian Empire in 1878 and then annexed in 1908 and then by 1918, it was all over. So it's barely a generation and a half. But in the time, um, people from Sarajevo had access to, you know, um, to Vienna and other parts of the empire. Uh, my, on my father's side, and the other way around too, uh, a lot of Ashkenazi Jews came um, uh, with the Austrians, right? Pinto's um, family is Sephardic, and these are the uh, people who, after the expulsion from the Iberian Peninsula, spread around the Ottoman Empire, of which Bosnia was part, for a long time. So in any case, so his family, Sephardic, his father has a, has a medal from the uh, a sultan and wears a fez and wears you know, Ottoman attire, whereas Pinto went to Vienna to school and met young um, and handsome um, poets and officers, and he wants to write poetry in German. And so the, he's uh, manning his pharmacy on the day that the Archduke arrives in Sarajevo for a visit and did not end well for the Archduke, that visit. Um, but uh, um, he also is prone to um, opiates. So he takes a little bit laudanum to sort of ease the anxiety and then a handsome officer walks into his store and he um, starts kind of flirting and desiring him and then dares under the influence of laudanum to kiss him and uh, the officer walks away and then he follows him out uh, hoping to you know prolong that contact and then he witnesses the assassination of the archduke 
and his wife. You describe that in great detail. I mean, I'm, the details are escaping me now, but I was struck at the time by, you even described the, most, the, the movement of what, something he's carrying. What was that, that level of detail? What was the purpose of it? Well, I mean, I'm first, I guess it's attention suficient disorder, I would call it. <laughs> so for me to imagine a world to which I have no direct access, right? Something that happens in 1914, in a city I know, but which has changed since in so many ways, I have to sit there and imagine what it smelled like. Mm. Who else was on the street? What are the people? What did the cars look like? What was the temperature? Some of that comes by way of research because that day is well recorded. There are witnesses. There was you know, a trial for, of the assassin. It, was, it exists in history as such. But what, um, what my bread and butter is as a, as a fiction writer is the things that uh, are not recorded, right? The bodily things, right? We are bodies in history, and then the historical books eliminate the, the corporal value of our lives to reduce it to kind of, not generalities as such, but to um, situations to, in which bodies don't make much, um, it ha don't have much value. In one of the books, it is mentioned that the Archduke, uh, Archduke's last, last words, and then I imagined a bubble popping out of his lips. And I do not know now whether that I read it in the book, I doubt it, or I imagined it. But that bubble, the moment that bubble popped, when I was writing it, the Archduke was alive for another 30 seconds, and then he wasn't. And so I obsess about these things. I suppose that's why I'm a, a writer, because there's no other domain in which that is a useful skill, right? <laughs> Dean, I was talking in the previous session about the Iranian way of telling a story which starts with the creation of the universe. And I thought that's, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at, right? So I, I spent, the book took so much time because I would read um, source material, testimonies and historical books about the events that I want to cover and then I would sit there and imagine what might it have smelled like, mm -hmm. right? What, what did it feel like? How does a body exist in history? Because we are bodies in history. Mm -hmm. It was the second attempt on the Archduke's life that day. Yeah. An earlier attempt, uh, one of the conspirators, one of Prince's co-conspirators had thrown a bomb which had bounced off the yeah. car and exploded and injure, injured somebody else. And uh, the Archduke went to the town hall to the reception that was waiting for him, absolutely furious, took out his speech, uh, which was now splattered with blood. And he was... And, um, Somebody said, somebody there said, we were watching him and we knew, we all knew that within a few minutes he would be dead because he was going back out to the streets and, and uh, the, his car was going along the embankment um, and the driver got confused about which way to go because he'd, he'd, the archduke had said, I want to go to the hospital to visit the injured, my injured colleague and the, 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 the car, the driver gets confused and stops the car right in front of Gavriel Princip who pulls yeah. the the gun out and fires two shots that killed both the Archduke and his wife, Archduchess Sophie, and, um, and the history of the world changed in that moment. And um, so, uh, I don't know why I'm telling you that story, but it's... Uh, um, <laughs> well, it's, I mean, the thing that changes that situation for me, we all know this, or most of the people know this, but the car didn't have a reverse. This is yeah. the thing that just kills me as a novelist, right? Yeah. It goes like time, only forward. You yeah. cannot reverse it. 
Yeah. So he was he got stuck. He couldn't yeah. reverse to go back into the main road. Yeah. And so this is why he parked effectively in front of the assassin. It's interesting. I went to Sarajevo in 1979 when I was 19 years old, backpacking around Europe. And I had pitched up in Sarajevo. I had no idea then that that city would come to play a very strong role in my life. Um, I'd spent four years there during the siege, or three years during the siege. And um, at that time, it was, I, I learned about what had happened to the reputation of Princip since his death in, 19, he died in prison in 1918. He was too young for the capital punishment. He was too young to be hanged, but some of his co-conspirators were hanged. And at that time, I was trying to find my way to the spot where Archduke Franz Ferdinand was killed. And so I kept asking people, where was Archduke Franz Ferdinand killed? And they didn't, it didn't mean anything to them. And eventually I said, you know, Gav Gavro Princip. And they said, oh, Princip, yeah, we know about Princip. And they would, <laughs> yeah. So Princip in, in Yugoslavia, after the first, Princip had become a hero, a, a, a Yugoslav liberation fighter. But then when the war started in, in 1992, nobody uh, wanted to celebrate uh, a Serb nationalist fanatic with a gun because there were plenty of Serb nationalist fanatics with guns in the hills around. And so Princip, Princip got reimagined again. Princip got re... Re, there was a, a different version of Princip. And well, it, before the war, he could fit into the kind of socialist communist narrative of people's liberation, right, against oppressive forces, including yeah. empires and emperors yeah. and all that. He was, he was cast as a revolutionary, right, whereas he was in the pay of the Serbian Secret Service, yeah. and, and which orchestrated assassination, yeah. right? And so, and that, so history, you know, um, history, we perceive it as self-evident, but it, it isn't. It has to be a story that is assembled in various yeah. ways, right, for the purposes that are ideological, just because there are not enough facts for us to think through. But what interests me as a writer, as a person, is where are the little people, right, the nothings and nobodies. There's a, um, Osman, the lover, tells a story in the book, which is a well-known story in Sarajevo, about you know he and a Bosnian, a Sarajevo and his wife in in 19th century, are going going to sleep, but they hear the booming of the cannon from the fortress above Sarajevo, and she, the wife, asks, "What, what is this?" Says, "Well, you know, there were some local people. They um, they opposed the Sultan, right? They tried to uh, organize an uprising. The Sultan sent people in." Uh, 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 a representative who has a, a silk rope for each of their throats, mm -hmm. right? And each time they strangle them with their own throat, the cannon fires as the soul departs the body. Mm -hmm. And the wife says, well, thank God you're nothing and nobody, mm -hmm. because all the conspirators were the important people in Sarajevo. Yeah. And to me, as, as a, because I'm a nothing and nobody in history, what is interesting, what happens to nothing, nothings and nobodies in history, right? What happens to people who family remembers and then family goes, they're gone. Where, what happened to them? So Peter and Osman, particularly Pinto, because the um, Jewish population of Sarajevo was wiped out in the Holocaust. It really, it was a, it was a whole, there was a whole part of the city. It was Jewish Sephardic Jews, and there were the Austrian Jews who came and worked as engineers and architects and many other things. That, kind, that exists only as a memory now, and a, a, a feeble feeble memory. What happened to those people? What did they feel, right? And so what I do is imagine the life that might have happened, right, and see what happens in those lives. So uh, Pinto comes from this Jewish community in Sarajevo, and there's still, there's still lots of evidence of that Jewish community architecturally and in the monuments of the city, especially the Jewish cemetery. Um, so it's a very strong presence because when the Jews were kicked out of Spain in the late 15th century, they, they settled in 
some, Europe wasn't safe for them, Christian Europe wasn't safe for them, the Ottoman Empire was safe for them. Uh, the multi-ethnic Ottoman Empire, many of them settled in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And um, uh, they spoke a particular language, didn't they? They spoke Ladino, which is, you know, a variation of the Castilian Spanish and Portuguese in, from the 15th century. But then, as languages work, um, uh, local languages and words were absorbed, right? And so, in Sarajevo, they called it Spanish, but Ladino was spoken all the way to um, uh, Iraq. In fact, in Baghdad, there's a whole population of Baghdadi Jews, who some of which, some of whom, end up in Shanghai, being uh, following the British Empire and the opium trade, yeah. and so on. And so, well, the important aspect of Pinter, one of the things that interested me, is that he's fundamentally multilingual and multicultural, right? That is, he speaks his native language, his mother tongue is uh, Spanish, Ladino. He speaks um, Bosnian, the language of the population, because he does trading with people and all this. He speaks German because he was educated in Vienna, right? And this is his starting position. And then as he passes through these uh, territories and countries, he picks up language along the way. And when um, he starts taking halfway through the um, journey, he starts taking care of a girl who may or may not have been the daughter of his lover, uh, biological daughter, and becomes her adopted father. They develop a language between the two of them that they only, the only two of them speak. So he speaks to her in German, Ladino and Bosnian, and then words along the way. Mm. And the word for such a language in linguistics, linguistics is uh, macaronic language, from macaroni. Uh, it's kind of, it, it's common um, among immigrants and mig migratory people where uh, macaronic discourse is when people use several languages in the same statement, the same sentence, the same paragraph. It, is, it cannot be, and some of those things become languages, uh, some of those, uh, if the population is big enough. But what happens, and you know, my family, most of my family, my father's side lives in Canada now, and the, on my mother's side, they scatter around the world, and my father's side too. And so each of those families, they, at various points, certainly the generation that um, w migrated first, they use macaronic language, right? They cannot remember the word in English, they use a Bosnian word, they cannot remember, they don't have a word in Bosnian for the thing that they have in, in the United States, whatever it is, credit card. They, you know, they, they use an English word. And this macaronic thing, uh, um, way that it, I see at some point, every language was macaronic. English in the 11th century or 12th century when the Normans came was Anglo-Saxon, mm. and then it was macaronic, and now it's cul-de-sac, wherever you look. And so it's just a French thing, right? Yeah. And so to me, whereas the nationalist notion of language that it's pure, that it can only be infected with the foreign words, and therefore it's the expression of the pure soul of the nation. Yeah. For where I come from, and I think it could be generalized unless the uh, language is geographically isolated, all languages at some point are macaronic. Mm. And I wanted Pinto to operate within a macaronic context. And yeah. if you, you know, load up culture that come through those cultures that come through those languages, mm -hmm. then the complexity of the characters Consciousness. Yeah, becomes, and English is, I mean, English is probably the most macaronic language in, in Europe, certainly. I mean, we have two words for most things, one, one from the French part of our language and the other one from the German part. I mean, and the French, often the French, word, the French versions are designed to, 
disguise the reality. So for, with food, for example, when it's in the field, it's a cow. But when it's on the plate, we use the French word beef. When it's in the field, it's a pig. Yeah. When it's on the plate, we use the French ver version pork. You know, and and, and um, I prefer the Anglo-Saxon core of the of the language. I think it's more uh, direct and honest. But I'm just opening the book at. Uh, at random here, and you use you, you pepper the the text, the, the prose, with words from this language. I'll, I'll just read a short a short passage. Osman's head was now covered in scratches, bruises, and scars. A detailed map of his febrile nightmares, but his wrist somehow was healing. Pinto kept his hand on Osman's forehead in a vain hope his touch might cool it, singing what Manucci used to sing to the sick little ruffle, Andaletto mi, andaletto. Mi querido enamorado. That's presumably Spanish. That's Spanish. It, it's a it's a um, Sephardic song that's sung all on in all the lands where the Sephardim uh, lived. Uh, as an aspect of this book, I should plug this. And I talked to a friend of mine who's a, a, a singer in Sarajevo, Dami Rimamovic, into recording an album that has the same title as the book, in which some of the songs that are mentioned in the book are sung. And so. There are a few uh, Sephardic songs, but also traditional Bosnian songs that they sing, sing to each other. Um, the, uh, the songs are sometimes hard to tell apart. You can tell them in terms of harmonic organizations. They're very, very similar because cultures influence each other, particularly if people live in the same small space constantly and, and for centuries. Um, and the whole notion of a culture as uh, coming out of the essence of the nation, that it, with clear borders of language, of cultural understanding, just collapses in a place like Sarajevo, right? Which is partly why Sarajevo paid such a heavy price. The violence against Sarajevo was directly proportional to the strength of the bonds um, of people living together for many centuries, rather than a consequence of hatred, mm. right? Um, and so. That the music it plays important role in, 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 in the book because they sing songs to each other and they realize it's just, at one point, a couple of points, they sing a song to each other, they realize it's the same song with different words mm. in different languages. Mm. Uh, I want to ask you um, about the very end of the book because you, you write it in the first person. And it, so it, it really is you <laughs> at a book festival in Jerusalem. Well, is I it fictionalized? You made it up. Well, I, I'm. It's <laughs> fiction. <coughs> I don't want to get into the theory of it. But parts of it are true, and then none of that happened in 2001. Where, where it okay. right? So I was in Jerusalem. I did meet Susan Zontag. There's an allusion to Susan Zontag here. You don't name Susan, though, but you. Right, but, but she's recognizable. <coughs> at a different place at a different time, right? Um, and also, no one told me the story that that, that person he meets at the end of the yeah. book um, tells him. So, she, yeah, she's yeah. fictional, because there's a. There's a there's an old lady who's a character from earlier in the book who turns up, yeah. and you meet her. So that possibly, and she, possibly she sings one of the songs yeah. from, from uh, early in the book. Yeah. So let me ask you about your, um, the trajectory of your, your life. What were you doing in the United States in 1992? Well, I was a young journalist, and I was invited to visit the United States for a month as under the auspices of the United States Information Agency, which I hoped was a spy agency because I like spies. But it wasn't. And then the Republicans dismantled that. So there's only, I might be the only one who remembers that in the United States. Um, and so for a month long visit um, to show me the wonders of democracy and all that. And so I traveled for a month. Um, but because the previous summer I had been in Ukraine at the time of the putsch and the dissolution of the United States and the declaration of Ukrainian independence, 
I happened to be outside of the Ukrainian parliament the moment they declared independence. I went to see some friends um, who I met in Kiev in 91 in um, Canada and in Chicago. And so I came to Chicago, it was my last stop in the United States and to hang out with this friend. And I was supposed to fly back to Sarajevo from Chicago. And my ticket was um, on May 1st, 1992. May 2nd, the, the, um, the siege fully closed. Yeah. Right, and no one could go in. The war started on April 6th, really. Right, well, there was a fighting around and there was, you know, but there was a withdrawal of the, uh, the, the, the Serbian troops or Yugoslav People's Army troops and once they left, the siege fully closed and they started shelling and didn't stop for more than a thousand days. So I, I would have landed just in time for the siege, so I, I didn't, I didn't yeah, go. No. And um, uh, 91 when you were in Ukraine, the war, there was a war in Croatia, neighboring right. Croatia, so the war had come to Yugoslavia already. Did you Bosnians expect it to happen in Bosnia? Well, this is this, this is we were talking about last night with friends here about you know the United States. The strange thing about human mind is that, and it was also mentioned earlier in the session with, about Jan Karski, is this difficulty of believing in what is already happening because the the. Uh, on, there could be some political interest or personal interest, but on a basic level, assuming that you're a decent person and not an anti-Semite or Islamophobe, it is hard to believe that your life as you know it will end just like that, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of a continuity bias, that things will go on as they are because why would they stop being the way they are? Mm -hmm. And so I was in Chicago in April of 92, I would call my mother to see there was all this shooting around the city and, and so I would call her and I could hear the shooting on the phone and I said, is that shooting, are they shooting? And she said, oh, they're already shooting less than yesterday. Because, and she was not crazy, she's a very smart woman, but because the very thought that this will end and it ended within five days, um, they left the city and never really lived there. Now they live in Canada. There's another one, one book of yours which I absolutely devoured when it came out and it was beautiful and I learned so much more about Bosnia and the, the, the experience than, than, than I had in three years in that war and, and I'm just going to quote a passage from it about the start of the war. My mother hadn't expected the war to come so it crashed into her life like a meteorite and with much the same disorienting effect. She still remembers her shock, the shell explosions, the curfew, the dissolution of her routines, her inability to fit the fact of war into the structure of the reality within which she operated. Uh, and in, this chapter is called Catastrophe and you say somewhere in this book that living through that experience develops in you an instinct for catastrophe. What do you mean by that? Well, um, we were oblivious to what was already happening to some extent. People who knew what was, what was happening were organizing what was happening, right? And the rest of us, the nothings and nobodies, were too afraid to imagine a reality in which we already lived that would end our lives as, as they are, right? And, so, and then um, the catastrophe happened. And then you become sensitive to the catastrophe. So it always looms on the horizon. And catastrophe, as, a, as an imagined thing, serves two functions. On the one hand, it constantly scares you and makes everything as it is unstable because it could end at any time. At the same time, um, based on this experience, because we could not imagine it even though it was happening, the scariest thing is always what you can't imagine, right? And in other words, to imagine a kind of a manageable catastrophe becomes a self, not self-suiting process, but makes things a little easier, right? So 
uh, I'm not projecting this to anybody, how are we going to live in climate change? Well, it's going to be hot, but there'll be air conditioning, mm. right? We'll go to the coast a little more often, right? Mm. Uh, maybe humans will adapt. Maybe not all of the species will die, mm. right? Whereas the actual possibility which we can intellectually comprehend and conceptualize of what could happen, what is likely to happen mm. at this point, right? Mm. It is so frightening that it, it just blocks. And oh. so there's this game of catastrophe that we play in my family, certainly. My sister is a therapist and she has many ideas about that uh, too. It is the game of catastrophe, it's always present, both as a soothing mechanism, we invent stories about man manageable catastrophes. What am I going to do if Trump is elected? Which, oh, I just move to Canada. Mm. <laughs> and, which didn't happen, obviously. And then there's this possibility of the unimaginable catastrophe, which always looms. And so to me as a, as a writer, as a, you know, a person in the imagination business, I'm constantly drawn to this yeah. thing beyond the line. At the same yeah. time as a person, I'm terrified of it. Because the thing about the unimaginable is it can't be imagined. So. That's right. Uh, That's and right. And you can never be prepared for it. It'll, yeah. it'll fall into your life yeah. like a meteorite as, and destroy everything. As the war did to your yeah. parents. There's one, with, with your permission, Sasha, I, there's one of the other passage I'd like to read here which, is, which talks about this. After the experience of war, she, your mother, couldn't sustain her belief in the inertia of reality, in the force that makes things continue as they are. Her mind now rejects the possibility of another war, but at the same time the unnatural rupture she had experienced makes any kind of stability suspect. Back before the war, she, like many, was protected by the unimaginability of the unimaginable. A comfortable, if false, assumption that what cannot be imagined cannot happen or even be happening. I, th so there are some one, I, the reason I brought this book along as, as well as your novel is there are, some, there are some wonderful sustained pieces of writing in it and I, again if you haven't read this I, I heartily recommend it. So the experience of exile for you, what was it like living in the United States when you knew all your people back home were living in this catastrophe? Well, I mean, what often happens to displaced people, refugees and migrants, you have at least two lives that you live, the past and the present, right? But also, unless all of your people have moved to where you are, there's the life here where you are and the life where they are. And that becomes, um, you know, emotionally difficult because you miss them. I love my parents. I always loved them. My sister, and and, you know, we see each other more often. But back then, they it took them a while to make it to Canada. But there's also this... Our notion, and Dina was talking about it beautifully, sort of the way you are seen in a new context, right, is not the same way you are seen in the other context. And this aligns with the languages in which you, you might use and, and speak. And so um, I would, you know, I, at, the, at the beginning of my time in the United States, I had this profound feeling that what I was saying, not that it wasn't true, but it was, did not match what I was feeling because I was using English. Mm. And the people, and the problem with that was what well, the people perceiving was not who I was, mm -hmm. and yet there was no other way to convey that, mm -hmm. right? At the same time, in Bosnian, right, uh, or with my Bosnian family or Bosnian friends, my experience in, unless they lived in the United States or in Chicago, indeed, they could not fully understand the person I was after the displacement, right? And so you get entangled in these um, presentations of the self, the kind of multiplications of the self. Mm -hmm which to me was highly traumatic at the time because I felt not that I was lying, but that I was not in no situation fully present. And then I learned over time, once I um, enabled myself to write in English and then started thinking about it a lot, it became kind of an asset. I can be 
several people simultaneously, right? It's the multiplication of the selves becomes a liberation in some ways. And it's, it's not so much that I could, I could be other people, but still within the domain of my life, right? And so, and it's not that different from any of us, right? Except we have the comfort of being self-evident in a, in, a, in, a, in a native culture. This house is fascinating. I kept keep thinking about it. It's been in the same family for since 12th to 12th century, right? No one in my family dies in the same country in which they were born. They either displaced or the country just changes while they stay in the same place. Right? There's no history of people living in the same house for 900 years, mm -hmm. the same family. So to be each, fair, it's pretty rare here too. <laughs> yes, but still, I mean, it, it, it exists as a possibility, yeah. right? That yeah. it's un, in other words, it's unimaginable. Yeah. It's unimaginable, which means that every time this, the, a shift happens, there's a, um, the, a bottom falls out, a catastrophe happens, Without any of your volition, your identity, the way you are perceived, changes, mm. right? And that generates a, uh, more stories, a different shape of stories. I was uh, thinking about it while I was listening, listening to Dina's conversation, um, the value of stories. If you are privileged enough to live in a society that, that provides some kind of continuity, a 900-year-old house, um, stories have a different value. If you are um, part of a population, world population of migrants, you cannot carry houses, you cannot carry anything when you go from one place to another. What you might carry, and that's also in this book about my parents, is stories, and that also means ethics, and, and stories also cover <coughs> memories and nostalgia and all that, right? And so this, this is transportable, this is what we carry mm -hmm. with, with ourselves. And so the ethics last, the stories last, the memories last, the songs last, all these portable things, portable things. And that's, you know, that, that's my bread and butter. But that means that you can, um, those are not easily translatable, translatable or transmittable to the others. Yeah. Uh, my family on my father's side are pretty much all relocated to uh, Canada and they are Ukrainian speaking. Um, my family migrated on my father's side within the borders of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the early 20th century and they brought songs and stories and all this. It's a very small population, 5,000 people uh, before the war and the census in Bosnia. And then they took that to Canada. My cousin who played in a Ukrainian orchestra wrote two notebooks. One of them was full of old Ukrainian songs that he played with my family in that Ukrainian orchestra, and the songs from Formula Slavia that they like to sing. Mm -hmm. And they, for years now, they all, many of them are old and sick, some of them died. For years, at any party that we had, they would just sing these songs. Pinto speaks three languages and picks up more languages as the novel goes on. And I was remembering that in the pre-First World War, Austro-Hungarian Empire, multilingualism was normal. Most people had command of more than one language. There's a story about the, the imperial census taker in Bohemia asking somebody, are you Czech or German? And the answer comes, yes, <laughs> I am Czech or German. When I'm in the countryside, I tend to be Czech. Well, when I'm in town selling my goods, I tend to be German. So the idea of multiple selves was once a, 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 a common or indeed normal part of the European experience. I had a great friend who was called Alastair Reed. Some of you might remember him, the Scottish poet uh, and essayist Alastair Reed, who died in 2014 at the age of 88. And he worked in, he lived, he didn't say he spoke. He said, I live in two languages. I live in English and in Spanish. And he was a translator of uh, 
especially um, New World Spanish poetry. If you read a, a, a Neruda poem in English, it was probably translated by Alistair. And he said, when I, when I mastered Spanish and began to live in Spanish, and he lived in Franco, Spain as a young man, when you live in another language, you, it's like growing another self, is, is how he put it. And, and that's clearly your experience as well, living in, in English. It is. I would the way I would I I, I would have uh, agreed with that some years ago, but it became a little more complicated in my mind. And that is, you know, um, in a multi-dimensional a multi-dimensional object can only be represented in two dimensions in a two-dimensional system, right? So imagine a self that is multi-dimensional. It's not separate selves. It is one self with many sides, mm -hmm. right? But if you are um, you, if you are reduced to one of those selves, you always feel that there's a large chunk of you missing, mm. right? And so that is, um, that is difficult. The way I suppose I deal with it is that I write in languages or language that, it, you know, more than one, I suppose. But also that I have multiplicity of uh, characters who can all represent in various ways yeah. um, some of those, some of those sides. Uh, the, your character, the two main characters, their relationship with Sarajevo as they get more and more distant from it, both in time and space, changes. Uh, and I wonder what, what what is your relationship with Sarajevo now? Well, I, because I've been going often after the war, um, I don't I don't feel nostalgia as much because people who are nostalgia is conditioned upon the separation from the home space, right? and so that you can only imagine it retroactively and edit it, as it were, mm -hmm. for enjoyment. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, there are many things I love, but I also know what the real situation is. And I found uh, that if I find ways to collaborate and work with people in Sarajevo, that kind of keeps my connection with the city as it is now, mm -hmm. alive and, and productive, mm -hmm. right? And so, uh, when I go there now, I don't wander around and look at the places of my youth or eat nostalgic food. I go and do stuff with people, very specific projects yeah. um, and with very specific goals and then we go out and, you know, party after that. But it's, I never have to, I don't have time when I go to consider who am I really now, no. right? I just go and make stuff in Sarajevo as I make stuff in, in the United States. Let's get some questions from the audience. I'm being told there's 10 minutes left. There's a lady down here. Can you, can you wait for the microphone to come? Yep, down here. <coughs> And there's someone here too. Lady in pink, yeah. And then a gen gentleman there, if you got the phone. No, the lady in pink behind, behind you, yeah. Thank you. Um, thanks for this. I haven't had the pleasure of reading your book, but I did buy it. So I got to page 15, which was fascinating. I have um, one question, which is on the migrant, um, the uh, aspect of being a migrant. So two questions there. One is you've portrayed, you know, you talked about how you transpose the nostalgia into something positive and you remember the good parts of what you've left behind. And at least in the migrant experience in the Balkans, there's also the negative that you carry with you, either the trauma associated with a traumatic event or hatred for something that happened. I'm just interested whether that's something you've explored in your books because a lot of that hatred also got translated into back into conflicts, which were then fueled also by migrant communities. And then the other aspect of this, you didn't talk about the guilt of the departed. So you left Sarajevo. You know, you well, I'm, 
my experience is you, if you're not part of the conflict and you've left a place, you often feel the guilt because you've left all of those behind and you are actually living, let's say, a good life, perhaps a difficult life. So maybe just something on this. And okay, the, let's, 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 no, let's, let's, okay. let's we've, you've, well, with the guilt, I did feel it, particularly when the war was going on, I felt terribly privileged. Um, but then I also realized, you know, it's not going, I can be useful to my friends and family and the city, which I love as a kind of an entity unto itself, um, in ways that I cannot, could not imagine at the time. But, and so um, one of the reasons I go back, it's not to deal with my guilt, but you know, um, what happens to a country like Yugoslavia, many places, uh, like Bosnia and Yugoslavia, is that diaspora becomes a, a part of reality. Right? It is not just people living abroad. There's this flow of money and products and memories. And it changes the identity of, of the country, of the nation, of all that. And so I, over time, we figure out, well, you know, I can do things here. And for many years also, I wrote uh, a column in Bosnian in which I was talking about these things and, and working it out. And uh, the nostalgia, you can think of two kinds of nostalgia. Sort of personal nostalgia, we remember the taste of ice cream, the first kiss or you know, particular angle of light when you were once somewhere, right? And there's a collective national nostalgia, like make America great again, right? When, when was it great? <laughs> what, what particular moment of greatness, even if it was great at some point, what, when, when is that? And so it becomes an illusional um, mythology, right? It's founded upon lies and, and kind of, it has direct ideological um, uh, implications, right? And there, I, I don't want to, I don't have time to get into it, but there are scholars to call these two kinds as reflective nostalgia, which is this personal nostalgia we reflect upon your life, and restorative nostalgia, right? So as, as personal nostalgia, you know this can, will never come back, right? You will never be young again. The, the apples will never taste the same, whatever. Whereas these people think, oh, we, we just have to kill this bunch. It'll be just as it used to be great mm -hmm. again. There's a, the, the, the Spanish novelist Javier Cercas, I don't know if you've ever read him, uh, there's a wonderful novel, a book called The Lord of All the Dead, which is, he calls it a, it's not quite fiction, it's not quite non-fiction, it's somewhere in the middle, and he, the, the main character is struggling with the guilt he feels because his family fought on the Franco side in the Civil War, and the Civil War isn't over in Spain, as many of you will know, and his friend says to him, don't feel guilt, guilt is a kind of vanity, don't make, it, don't make their pain your fault. Yeah. Don't put your center, yourself at the center of the story. Don't feel guilty, feel responsible. Yeah. It, was a, it really That's made me brilliant. think about the nature of guilt. Yes, gentlemen there. Thank you. I, I loved what you were saying about the unimaginable, and it was great to have a passage written out by that. And in some ways, that's um, projected into the future, and it's about what's happening outside ourselves. I'd just like to ask you about another axis of the unimaginable. You know, in a, in a clinical mental health domain, in terms of what happens inside ourselves, and, and is, is unimaginable in terms of what happened in the past and becomes assimilated inside that is something that is unimaginable. And I'm making a generalization about psychiatry, but I think it's in the dark ages in terms of understanding the phenomenology of dissociation, which is hugely important and just hardly understood as an aside. So I'm very interested in, in, in your thoughts about, about that as a phenomenon that happens inside ourselves and whether that's been part of your fiction. That's an interesting and complicated question. Um, I think, you know, um, you probably know, this, um, 
narrative paradigm in psychology. That is, we imagine our lives as the stories in which we are the main characters, right? And that becomes, makes our life manageable, but also we have a vision of ourselves that is not always aligning with reality. So if I think of myself as a decent person, then I will edit my life in such a way that, you know, that I come out to myself as a decent person and I can project this in social circumstances. And Trump imagines himself as a young and thin man. Mm -hmm. And so he lies, you know, relentlessly and the leader, whatever. And so, but that requires kind of staying away from unimaginable things, sort of managing impulses that are, um, uh, I, I imagine, managing impulses that are frightening, scary, and that come from depths that are um, hard to socially regulate, right? And so if those impulses are strong enough, then it becomes hard for a person to live. And I don't know if this is a solution for anyone, but whatever violent and other impulses I have, I sort of direct them towards fiction, right? For me to understand a, a violent person in fiction, I had to dig through some things that I cannot imagine doing, right? Doesn't mean I wouldn't do them. I have no idea what, what I would have done in the war, honestly, right? But because I constructed my life story as a decent person, I can, I have claimed, well, I would never have done that, right? But I don't really know. But I can imagine in a, in a book in fiction, someone doing things. And if I can imagine it, I'm capable of it, right? And so, which also, in terms of what I was talking about catastrophe, means that there's the other side, the unimaginable part of myself, that if it bubbles up to the surface, becomes, becomes scary, right? We talked about guilt, we talked about nostalgia, we've talked about the migrant experience. And I was, as I was reading the book, I, was, I, I, kept, I kept looking for signs that anger was also a part of the, uh, the, the experience. And there doesn't seem to be any anger in you. Well, well yeah, say that to my wife, yeah. <laughs> um, the Lazarus Project, a novel from 2008, was furious. In fact, when I was writing this, I was angry at the Bush administration and the whole notion of America, it's, you know, life, um, world saving and all that. And so I would write pages and pages of railing and rants, and then I would cut it down to a paragraph and give it to a character, right? Yes. And who would then, and I would dissociating myself from that anger in some ways. And, this, and so there was a lot of anger in that book, and I can see it in sort of, in its absence, or there's some presence because there's an angry character there. But in this book, at some point, I started loving their love. And that, that, that kept me going. I, I, they go through unimaginable uh, circumstances, and I wanted, at some point, the, 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 uh, what drove me is I want to see under what circumstances that love can still survive, right? And that, and, and that love did not contain anger, or at least not um, significant amounts of anger. There is great beauty in the book. I do recommend that you go and buy it. Uh, Alexander will be uh, signing copies in the book tent, and uh, I do heartily recommend it. Please thank Alexander Hamill. Thank you very much.